Welcome aboard. This is Illiterate. My name is Evan. My name is Taylor. I read two books this week. God, I watched a movie this week. We are covering Netflix's Moxie. Directed by Amy Poehler. It came out March 3rd. It's about Vivian, a 16-year-old fed up with the sexism at her high school who starts a secret magazine in the titular Moxie mm. to promote a feminist agenda and all-out culture war at her high school. It's uh, it's pretty fun. I'm really excited to, to open this up, but we want to preface this with we are men. <laughs> We're dumb. <laughs> we we do not know what we're talking about. That's kind of the point of the show is we want to do better. So we're digging into this today. So just to preface, if you've like read all of Tina Fey's books, maybe this will be a retread for some of you. But if if you like Tina Fey but you don't know, you know, and those Amy Poehler and, and the, women yeah. in comedy, then perhaps we have something to offer you. Just bear with us if this is what your life is about. Please let us know how angry you are. Please get in contact with us <laughs> or, anyway. <laughs> or hopefully we'll find, you know, because we're going to talk, like you said, there's her inspiration for this moxie. It comes from this uh, punk rock feminist subgenre movement in the 90s. So if you know nothing about that, we knew absolutely nothing about any of this. So we're going to hopefully piece some things together and show you how history goes from one thing to the next, because this is also being spoken very loosely as an answer to Mean Girls which Evan mentioned Tina Fey was her movie many moons ago. And how is this an answer to that movie by her dear friend, Amy Poehler? What a web we weave. I can't <laughs> wait to go on this ride. <laughs> of course, like all illiterate adventures, starts with a book, the 2017 novel by Jennifer Mathieu. She is a lovely lady, watched a bunch of interviews with her. This is now her 16th year as a high school English teacher. And uh, she's also an author covertly because she uses her oh. married name in, as her teacher alias. So some of her kids don't even know what she does on the side. But this, is, this was her fourth of now five books out. And one of her books got the Children's Book Council debut award. And she was on the Amazon editor's best young adult novels for 2014. Wow. So she's doing, doing great work. Oh. And like Evan said, we're woefully ignorant about a lot of things. So I cannot begin to get into the depths of the different waves of feminism. But she said, as far as what she recommends as a book to read is called Girls to the Front by Sarah Marcus, which is specifically about this riot girl movement right. in the 90s in punk rock, where the main character gets her influence uh, because her mom was a part of that movement. She said that a lot of the bad experiences that happen in the book she said, either they happen to me or a friend or something I have observed in a high school setting as a teacher. Oh, wow. So a lot of maybe some of the criticism of the movie is like, oh, people wouldn't do that. And it's like, well, <laughs> they do. They do. <laughs> this they is high school. I find that so often is, is you know, the, the unbelievable is actually, it's it's that simple. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, it, I, I can see where, where parts of this set could feel outlandish, but absolutely happen. Mm -hmm. it, it straddles that line. And of course, because this is coming from the book, there are a lot of differences, but uh, Evan alerted me before we got into this. <laughs> he had kind of positioned this episode as a comparison between Mean Girls, which I you, saw you so know, long ago, but it, it, do, it does ring so true once you see the plot of the thing. And what do you think 
was much more similar than even I expected. I kind of said that on an offshoot of like, well, Amy Poehler is directing. We got girls in high school, this group. But when it comes down to this magazine, this anonymous magazine she publishes, well, that's also kind of the linchpin at the end of Mean Girls, where the anonymous hate book is revealed to Mm -hmm. the entire school. So it's it's very, very interesting that these two things share something so tightly wound as far as an an anonymous feminist, uh, you know, uh, magazine. Now, the difference is is between the conversation here of how long we've come in nearly 20 years, Mm -hmm. whereas is like mean girls uh, the conversation there is we can't be mean to each other because that gives everybody else an ex- excuse to do whatever so in 20 years where moxine is now more of like we actually need to band together and actually and say say something when our voice say something when some, when we see something right uh, use our voice for something as a collective because we're stronger together than just you or me or somebody else uh, individual so the author of the book Jennifer Mathieu References heavily Riot Girl, which was this punk rock feminist subgenre of music in the 90s. And so we'll do our best to dive straight down to the deep end. This is also where the slogan girl power comes from, was derived from the pages of these Riot Girl zines, self-published, collaged magazines, which I didn't know that at all. No. Now that's like a massively commercial, right? you know. Thing, but it came from this. This, as as most things do, come. From I didn't realize small. it was that late in the you know the late '80s, <laughs> early '90s. Like, yeah, you exactly. Know, that almost feels like. I don't know. You could have said, if, uh, you know, 1940, you know, 1940s, <laughs> women going to the workforce or something. You know, I would have been like, right. <laughs> no, yeah, it's super Gosh. recent. So, as far as punk rock is concerned, as a whole, it just started becoming more toxic towards women. And these fan magazines had grown in the British scene of music since the 70s as kind of a part of perpetuating the punk culture is this DIY stick it to the establishment. And also some context for the Moxie movie where it's taking place in present day. You know, this would be the only way that you could distribute even not just the set list or the lyrics or anything, but like what the movement was as a whole. Even as far as 1976, there was a punk magazine called Sniffing Glue was probably the most popular one. <laughs> but they explicitly said in that in one issue of that magazine, punks are not girls. Hmm. So it's already an exclusionary thing. So the formation of this riot girl movement, and when we say riot girl, it's girl with three R's in the middle. But the formation of it started in the Seattle Olympia, Washington area right at the start of the 90s. These two gals, Toby Vale and Kathleen Hanna, had formed their own punk magazine and band called Bikini Kill, and their music is used in the film. Hell yeah. (laughs) So they formed in October of 1990. There was another band called Bratmobile in Oregon, which was formed by Jen Smith, and she was the first one to use the phrase Riot Girl in a letter Mm. to one of her bandmates, Allison Wolf, and then this other guy, Allison Wolf, partnered with the band in Seattle, Bikini Kill, to create this new magazine, which then is the Riot Girl with three R's. And the girl part came from being empowered as girls, kids, before society takes over your conceptions of what it is to be a woman. Liberate that word, which is why they also use the triple R, because it's kind of changing the derogatory use of the term. There is a fantastic uh, documentary about Kathleen Hanna. Mm. Uh, It came out in 2013. It's called The Punk Singer. 
Uh, I've seen it. It's it's pretty fantastic. If you're into if you're really into this and want to know more about that political movement, the music scene through the 90s uh, revolving around Bikini Kill and Riot Girl, punk singer, you know, look no further. Yeah, I'll, I'll definitely post a link to that in our show notes. Everything we talk about will be there. But a lot of the zines and things that they were going to led to not just punk rock music shows, but group meetings discussing pertinent topics as it relates to girls slash women. They were bringing up problems that they saw domestic violence, homophobia, and were notably female in a outstanding way in the best sense of the, of the word because they mm-hmm. wore their hair in ponytails, performed in makeup and dresses. Kathleen Hanna, as you mentioned, sung in a valley girl accent in parts. They were very <laughs> trying to say, hey, we're girls in this movement. It's not something that is exclusionary. Yeah. And Kathleen Hanna would even you call- You can't tell us we're not. We can't. You can <laughs> sing punk music. Yeah. What, that's what punk is about. You know? like, <laughs> exactly. Like, you can't, tell, you can't tell me what to do. Yeah. She would, even, she would even call girls to the front of the stage because they were girls in, the, in yeah. these mosh pits were often attacked and pushed to the back. I saw footage where she's like, no, all that, like, let them come up to the front. Like, this is not- Something just that got you a, can just a sudden urge to watch a movie I've been I've not seen but I've been meaning to watch forever. I directed mm-hmm. by Drew Barrymore. It's about girls doing like roller derby. Yeah, so yeah. Suddenly, <laughs> I just like oh, I want to watch that now. I'm, like it's in that's ridiculous. That's a movie I've been like putting off watching for like a decade. <laughs> yeah, yeah. That's definitely the 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 vibes here, and also in terms of the the magazine thing. Like I just didn't really even. It didn't hit me I had as no far as reading the that, book, no. but this is really a precursor to the internet of sharing art, ideas, information in the shows, handing out free cassettes. It's not even in relation to the music. Like I said, it's not e- it's not even about getting publicity for your band. It's about all these other things, these topics yeah, that are- what's going on in your scene and what, we, what, what we're about and what we're here to do. Especially as it relates to women. <laughs> like thing? I said, what's- domestic violence, sexual assault, like things that are not being talked about. Yeah. And information that that's the only way that it can be distributed to these people. So it also impacted and and then expanded to the mainstream. There's a band Slater Kinney, which formed at the end of the movement and became massive in the indie rock scene. And you could even say acts like Fiona Apple or Alanis Morissette discussing mm. female empowerment came from this. But the movement as a whole, at least in the public consciousness, the very generic public consciousness was sort of made to look ridiculous or they misprinted the magazines out of context, did not address the fact that they were trying to address these more pertinent political topics or doing things like putting three R's in girl or writing slut in lipstick on your stomach intentionally to reclaim the phrase or make a mm-hmm. message. It's just like, oh, it look, right. look at these weird people. And then the same thing, the Spice Girls sort of co-opted that girl power term and maybe turned it into, I mean, it did a lot of good, but it also morphed into this Frankenstein consumerist thing where it's like Barbie has girl power, but it's like, maybe you don't want to be like Barbie. It's almost strange how quickly they like grabbed it. They seized it. <laughs> yeah. Like, cause I'm like, wow, this just happened in the nineties. And when did you know, like oh, spice girls? Yeah. In the nineties. Yeah. And then it, uh, it lastly, in terms of the, the connection to another burgeoning music scene, I didn't know anything about Kathleen Hanna or any of this. So this was fascinating to me. Kurt Cobain dated Toby Vale who was one of the members of the of Bikini Kill mm. in 1990 and introduced Hannah to Dave Grohl and then they started dating. These are wow. the folks from Nirvana. So they're doing their own thing, but these are two bands that have two couples in wow. each bands in 1990 and Kathleen Hannah wrote the phrase Kurt smells like teen spirit on his wall one day because he was using Toby Vale's deodorant 
the girl deodorant teen spirit. And Kurt Cobain <laughs> said he didn't know that and thought it was some anarchist punk rock sentiment. <laughs> he thought it was like, I do, you know? Yeah. And then, <laughs> she's like, no, the scent, the yeah. literal scent. So she was the one who came up with that most iconic. I mean, now wow. that's like a song of a generation, you know? I love that it's also misunderstood from the inception. <laughs> it's a joke. But this is this this is from, no, from her. No, it is. That's what it's called, Kurt. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. So that kind of segues me at least into Amy Poehler, because yet another person that I didn't know anything about, and not even necessarily. I just don't watch. Like, you a know, lot of TV. We, you know, yeah. you know who she is. Yeah, but, but I've never know, seen Parks and Rec. Right. I, I, I don't know. watch I a lot of TV. I, I haven't either. I've not seen Parks and Rec. But she is beloved by so many. So I thought, let me dive in and see how she ties into comedy, writing, and then Mean Girls, all that stuff. She was raised in in a Boston suburb. Her parents were teachers, which I thought was interesting. Oh, really? Um, because her energy is very much helping other people along, positive, uplifting. Warm. Warm. <laughs> yeah, warm, exactly. She moved to Chicago in the 90s to study improv. This is where she met Tina Fey. Take, they were both taking classes in 93. At Improv Olympic or IO, gosh, if you're in the scene, theater class is where they met. Then they joined Second City touring together. And Amy Poehler settles in New York and co founds in New York City Upright Citizens Brigade, which is an, the other big thing. Uh, the other improv player in theater. the ring. Yeah. <laughs> And in 1996, that became a series on Comedy Central and they had various specials and whatnot. Tina Fey, on the other hand, joins SNL and she became obsessed with getting Amy Poehler in on that game. Tina Fey had been a writer there oh, since- really? I didn't know that it was her that got her over there. Mm-hmm. Well, yeah. She had been a writer there since 97. And then in 2001, Amy Poehler joined the cast. They're the first women to host Weekend Update together. And then in 2004, Tina Fey casts her in a smaller budget comedy at the time called Mean Girls, which I was surprised to find out. This is also based on a book called Queen Bees and Wannabes. Right. I know less about that, actually. Yeah. yeah. This is the second book that I read this This week. is why I wanted to do this, because I knew Mean Girls was a book. This is a book. Tina Fey, Amy Poehler. Ooh. Mm-hmm. Ooh. The parallels. <laughs> the parallels. It'll be bountiful. It'll be, it'll be teeming. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So the book is by Rosalind Wiseman. It's a nonfiction. I think I, I, I couldn't get through all of it because it's so much information. And it's basically oh, yeah. like if you're going to raise a daughter or have anything to do with having a child who is a girl in your life, like please read this and learn about <laughs> psychology and mm. social dynamics and empathy and everything yeah. as it relates to all different sorts of scenarios. And now there's an updated version as it relates to social media and technology, because oh, that's good. a whole other wow. can of worms. Okay. But it's just, <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's incredible. And this is where the, the phrase mean girls comes from, is from this book where she's talking about what that means and, and the different types and the clicks and, and all of that stuff comes from there. Yeah. So Tina Fey read this, said, hey, the, the, the concept's from here, but the whole story is hers and original. And she's the one who wrote the movie as well. And like you said, in terms of the similarities, like they both feature an outsider trying to free the student body from the A-listers. The misogyny. Yeah. Mean Girls is 
more about deconstructing girl on girl aggression and moxie. Right. This is not a, is about Mean inclusion. Girls is not about reactions to feminism. It's not about the the culture war that we're having today. It's an internal discussion about girl to girl. How do we treat each other? Mm-hmm. Uh, whereas the, I think Moxie is about what do we do with that. Yeah. It's also interesting that even Amy Poehler is playing the mom in both. <laughs> yeah. I've almost totally like different different versions of the cool mom. (laughs) You know what I mean? Like that's the joke in Mean Girls, and then it's the that's actually beautiful because that's you're exactly right because as she is portrayed in Mean Girls, like you know, like throwing condoms everywhere, like you're just like way over involved and Mm -hmm. like edging these girls on to like really like behavior just well just leave it at that <laughs> whereas this one you know like at the time that was the funny idea of a cool mom and now the idea of a cool mom is like one that listens to you yeah. one that like her whole arc is like no i want you to be yourself that's the whole point you don't get it like i don't want you to be like me i want you to be you mm-hmm. and it's like wait but that's a cool mom yeah, <laughs> yeah. it's like how far have we come in 20 years right. like, and and amy poehler is <laughs> both. both of them yeah <laughs> Fascinating. When the Mean Girls was starting to be developed, obviously Tina Fey wanted her in, but Paramount was wary of casting her because they'd been burned, I guess, from their perspective on some other, quote, SNL Mm. films, and they didn't want to feel like it was that sort of movie, according to the director, but they got her in. And a thing that shocks a lot of people is that Amy Poehler and Rachel McAdams, the daughter, they're only seven years apart in age. So that was also a consideration is like, can she even play this part? But then she does it beautifully. That's um, amazing. So Amy Poehler then leaves Saturday Night Live in 2008 and does Parks and Rec in 2009. Tina Fey consequently went to go do her show 30 Rock in 2006. So that's another fascinating yeah, kind both of- do move on to the you know like i always viewed parks and rec as the you know the the answer to the office it seemed like you know by that point mm-hmm. amy poehler steve carell the, well there you go there's your one for one replacement she's a big star we get these you know these characters to surround them in this workplace there you know that's almost yeah. why i didn't watch it because i was like it's basically the same premise but it's very you know, different you know like yeah. when it comes down to just the mechanics of it and i was like well you know I've done the workplace. <laughs> I've done the workplace comedy. I've d- I just did it, you know. Like so, I, I think that's the only reason I didn't. I didn't hop on board. Yeah, but from what my brother and sister-in-law tell me, you know, it is a completely different. She is not female Michael Scott. Sure. Yeah, it's a completely different character. And as Amy Poehler, like you said, warm. She has feminist ideals. She's lifting people up. It is a mm. completely different character and story and tone and everything. And then lastly, in terms of the the connection between them, Tina Fey and Amy Poehler, they've hosted the Golden Globes four times, including this year from across the doing, coast. Doing research for this, that was the brunt of what you have to get past was all of their award <laughs> right. show moments. Yeah. <laughs> I'm like looking for like tasty nibs of like their relationship and where they came from and those kinds of things. And it's just like all their award show models. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And they did a couple other movies together, but I think uh, just a quote from Amy Poehler's biography from 2014. She said, we met each other when we were poor and single. And she said, now we're both rich as shit and have husbands all over the world. (laughs) But they don't want to necessarily do a thing where they're both in charge together because they realize like that's the element of their friendship that would be compromised. Like they know to sort of intersect in in a weaving web. Mm. Through their professional and and friend 
interaction. That takes big. But, that takes huge maturity. But they're not going to do a show together. They said like, that just can't happen. <laughs> so all of the stuff talking about those two ladies led me to realize my lack of knowledge in what they are coming from. Like we talk right. about the the punk movement, but who is in, their predecessor? Right, you know? female comedy. Which first that like terminology. I watched a documentary, which I'll post a link to, called "Women in Comedy." which was a documentary on PBS. And at the end, the one gal being interviewed is like, this is the last documentary where you're allowed to say, it's just comedy. I think it was Joan Rivers, who's like, there's no comedy and then women in comedy. It's like, it's just comedy. <laughs> we don't need to, we don't need to say, like, there's no, there's no different. Like, right. So that's all I'll say about, about that. But that's a great resource as far as, as all this stuff. But you had said you had seen something like way, way back, which reminded you of something that we had talked about I, I was looking for, you know, I was like, did Lucille Ball ever step into like directing? Is there a predecessor? What's this idea of like women in women in comedy, stand up, improv, and then expanding in their in their medium? But in the middle of pulling on that, I found a character that uh, that reminded me of of people that we've just been talking about uh, in in episodes recent past. This reminded me a lot of uh, Ma Rainey's Black Bottom, a, a bit of Billie Holiday, uh, but I ran across who is credited as the first female period, the first female stand-up comedian is Jackie Moms Mabley. Mm -hmm. So she was uh, back in the, in the fifties, she was doing stand-up. She was a gay black and politically uh, minded figure. And at that time was just, it stands out. It speaks volumes to me that like, wow, she's really uh, blazing a trail. If you've listened to the Billy holiday episode from a couple weeks ago, or uh, Ma Rainey from uh, uh, earlier this year, uh, this character fits right in line with these strong black women uh, in arts characters that we've been kind of picking apart and looking at. Um, and her story is just as textured and as rich mm -hmm. and as traumatic as all of those. So if you've not heard of Jackie Moms Mabley, I'd implore you, please go check her out. So I figured that was worth oh, yeah. worth bringing up. No, that's super cool. That's And that's a great start to it all. Because also, the thing that I had seen is that there's, at least in this documentary, they were talking about women as it relates to comedy and sort of the the trouble being like men being uncomfortable with it. Um, <laughs> so Phyllis Phyllis Diller is is the most known female comedian from the 50s, but her whole shtick, she was very self-depreciating. It was all based on how ugly she was. She's not ugly. Mm. Like there's pictures of her. She's chic and elegant off stage, but it's kind of like she can't be a challenge to to the husbands in the audience. You know, like and that's sort of the the game she had to play in her first at being that is, one of the main. That's fascinating because that's that really uh, actually parallels uh, moms, uh, moms Mabley with her uh, on stage persona was this old woman with like a frumpy house dress mm -hmm. and hat and toothless and like she you know she had to put on this crazy character that then allowed her to get just as 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 wild as she wanted to be. Yeah, so it was a hugely smart decision. It, it's genius because and it's exactly relating it back to Moxie. It's that the Vivian doesn't have the uh, the gumption to and doesn't know what the right thing really is because she doesn't have an outlet she's not able to stretch she doesn't have those muscles because she has mm -hmm. nowhere to stretch those muscles so she assumes this moxie persona to where she can finally just yell out and scream her voice yeah uh, finally just somewhere to uh, work her voice like a muscle 
Mm -hmm. And and lo and behold, there's an audience there and people reciprocate to it and people feel involved with people feel the exact same thing. So it's interesting that that, you know, putting on these characters through these prisms are allowed to open up the honesty of it all. I I think that's really fascinating. But then coming back down back to these women in in comedy, early comedy and them having to like put that it was the kind of the necessity of they had to create these onstage personas, these characters that then made it it was then it was easier to just get down and dirty yeah i don't know if you're familiar with the show the marvelous mrs Maisel. right i i haven't seen i've only it, seen the first yes. episode my girlfriend absolutely loves it my mom loves it <laughs> my dad sat as dads do sort of just standing behind the couch watching but never right. actually sitting down <laughs> for the whole thing but he's like oh this reminds me of joan rivers and so i think it's it is definitely a a love letter to her because she mm. comes she actually comes from Second City the same place that Tina Fey and Amy Poehler did in, okay. in she debuted in in uh, 1961 she's more the traditional stand up in the clubs and whatnot Joan Rivers and she said once she got a note from Lenny Bruce saying you're right they're wrong Lenny Bruce and she kept that forever mm. because she is not wow. putting on a charade of trying to pander. But it worked. She had an immensely successful stand-up career. She's the first woman to host her own late-night talk show on a major network. Oh, man. That was a late show starring That's Joan cool. Rivers. That's exactly kind of what I was like trying to pull on. I was trying to find like, – Yeah. I'm glad I found mom. <laughs> yeah. So uh, the next person that we go into as we move into the 60s is Carol Burnett. And all these names I've heard but have no context for. Right. She's She had been in seven decades of television – the, oh my the God. biggest being the Carol Burnett show from 67 to 78, the first of its kind of variety show hosted by a woman, more like Saturday Night Live, more like vaudeville with sketches and music and the whole right. shebang, but it's her show. It's the Carol Burnett show. She's also the first celebrity to appear on Sesame Street. She's in episode one of, oh, of wow. Sesame Street because that also debuted in the late 60s. That's huge. Mm-hmm. That's bigger than I think we're even like want to stop and give that some credit because I think that is that must be um that's a milestone. Yeah. Yeah. So that was a huge, huge piece of work that that she was involved in. Wow. Um, and I did not know that. At she all. was friends with Lucille Ball and I can't even get into her all of her stuff because it's just insane how much she was involved in and did. But I just thought for my own whimsy to think about, like you said, the perspective, her production company, Desi Lou named after Desi Arnaz and her Lucille, was the second largest independent television production company in the United States. Oh my gosh. And outside of her shows, I Love Lucy and whatnot, which was also the first to feature an ensemble cast, she was on the artistic side of her production company because she had starred in a bunch of B-movies before and sort of knew what people wanted and how to make it happen. I didn't realize that their production company was responsible for Star Trek. Whoa. Really? Gene Roddenberry came to them, and then it got bought by CBS or whatever. They were the production company that made it. Lucille Ball, her production company. Yeah, she saw. <laughs> she's she's she was the one who who gave the the go ahead on Star Trek and also Mission Impossible. Oh man, that's amazing! <laughs> yeah. Wow, her but that's huge. That's crazy. Yeah, but the big one from the seventies was the Mary Tyler Moore Show. Oh yes, okay, okay. Are you familiar with that at all? Just a bit. Just you know, that's that's the, we're getting warmer with the <laughs> names and the you know the just yeah. the into our time from <laughs> seventy to, to seventy seven. Notable for its portrayal of an independent working woman, 
She's the associate producer of a news program in Minneapolis, and it's challenging the role in marriage and family because she doesn't have a family. She doesn't have a husband. Mm. And that show spurred three spinoff shows from the three supporting characters, each of them lasting two to five years. The show won oh, 29 Emmys. That record was not broken until 2002 when Frasier won 30. Wow. And of course, if you can see that she's an associate producer of a news program in Minneapolis, Tina Fey was heavily inspired by this for her mm-hmm. show, 30 Rock, mm-hmm. as it relates to <laughs> showing that, television that, production. That makes you know. sense. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, I thought it was interesting. I don't, I don't know much about this at all, but later in life, Mary Tyler Moore was she said she was recruited to join the feminist movement of the 1970s by Gloria Steinem, but did not agree with her views and said that women have an important role in raising children and did not believe that women owe it to themselves to have a career, which is just fascinating considering all that she did and how known her show was for presenting an independent feminist woman and tackling wage discrimination issues and all kinds of stuff. That's fascinating. So yeah, I don't know where how that fits in, but I just thought that that was notable. Notable, <laughs> exactly. And then the last one to get to, which really is the the capstone on Amy Poehler, Tina Fey, is Gilda Radner, who was in Second City in 1974, and she became the very first cast member that Lorne Michaels hired for the start of Saturday Night Live in 1975. Oh wow! The now famous. And uh, she had joined Second City in 73. She was also on the National Lampoon Radio Hour, which had Chevy Chase, Bill Murray, all that is going on. And she was notable for her her iconic characters, obviously Saturday Night Live, the start of all that, and her show on Broadway. And I just saw from from a book, which I'll post a link to, called We Killed the Rise of Women in American Comedy. They were just saying here, there's hardly a female sketch comic today who does not claim Radner as an inspiration for her comedy career. Wow. It's an interesting subject to go from the waves of of movements. Absolutely. How did we, you know, we think of them as such a uh, uh, such a pillar of comedy, you know, for the last few decades they have been, but it, it, immediately asking ourselves like, well, who are their predecessors? Who, who, who could we relate them to? That's why doing this is really worthwhile. It's like, okay, and tracing it back. What is the lineage here going from one to the other? It's good to know how punk rock fits into this movie Moxie and how that's a reflection of Mean Girls, which is a reflection of, of comedy and, and movements as a whole. Yeah, if you, you pair this, the, the the women in comedy up through into Mean Girls launched into this paired with that, you know. 90s, <laughs> yeah. It's 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 hugely fun, and it's fun to, to watch. And what I enjoyed, and I think on, on other movies maybe that we've covered, and maybe like if I could lightly compare this to like Kissing Booth or something like that, is I think on one level that the, that the direction of this really succeeded on Amy Poehler's part. Uh, was showing this main character's uh, growth and journey. And it was subtle. It wasn't until after the fact that even down to the costuming, I really uh, took in like, wow, she has gone through a whole journey just down into the costuming and, mm-hmm. and in a subtle way too. And in, in a way that I didn't realize they were trying to say anything in any particular scene until it was over, until I had the sum. 
And so you see her go from awkward, not really sure, not doesn't have much of an identity into she has a full on identity and she's a whole person by the end of the end of the film. So I think when it comes down to that, uh, the, the arc here and then Amy Poehler's direction and, and, and I want to uh, second this with the casting. I think this is the second where this really does succeed, where other films in this on this in, in this level might uh, might make some some other d- right. decisions. I think every one of these casting decisions was spot on, nailed on. What Amy Poehler is good at are characters. What Amy <laughs> Poehler is good at is dialogue and 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 uh, chemistry, and she nails that out of the park through this whole thing. So, uh, and and you cannot say enough for the a director's job. That is everything. If you if you mess up casting, you're an uphill about it battle all the way through. So I would just. I just wanted to to maybe because I you know it's back and forth. This is this is a movie that's been successful. It's been in the Netflix top ten, but there's a lot of talk about it and a lot of criticism out there, and a lot of lumping it in with other movies that I would say maybe it it, it is you know I, I I would like to put a stake for where it is good, where it succeeds. Yeah, and is it the answer to Mean Girls? Maybe, maybe not. That's the baton mean, pass. Yeah, you know, yeah. I, th- you know yeah. I think I think you got to have Mean Girls first. Was like we can't have this infighting. We got to be united. Okay, we're united. Now what? what? <laughs> That's what this movie does. Yeah. Well, cool. Thank you guys so much. Thank, Thank you. you, Taylor. Yes. Thank you for sticking with us. A special request. Evan and I were talking <laughs> about how we enjoy doing every episode, and we know that people pick and choose based on their interests, whether they like horror or whether they like what's we just We cover come a out lot or, of things. And we do that know? purposely. We don't expect... Yeah, because we're we very, don't expect to have everybody listen to every episode. Not everybody's into everything. But... I predict that there is one person somewhere out there that does listen to every single episode or has listened to every single episode and gone back and done so. And if you are that person, please do not hesitate to reach out to us at IlliteratePod on Instagram. We're just fascinated if you are that person. Or if you're not that person, obviously reach out to us. But this is a special request because (laughs) if you have listened to every episode, you're listening to this one. And we want to know who you are, and maybe we'll send you a, a present or something. Yes, yeah, please get in touch with us. It, it doesn't mean the world. But on to the next. We will see you guys next week. Thank you so much. Later. Later. Later.